Sound and Vision from KEXP in Seattle. I'm Emily Fox. On today's podcast, we'll hear about the life, legacy, and music of Jimi Hendrix. He became famous within 10 days of moving from Seattle to London. There has never in the entire history of rock been a performer who went from complete infamy to stardom as quick as Jimi Hendrix. In light of current events, KEXP's Wopop DJ Derek Mazzoni will introduce us to music from Iran. When there's music of those people there, it makes you think about this in a different way. It's not just a game anymore. These are people holding their babies, holding their children, terrified that this is happening. But first, let's check in with FKA Twigs. She's a British singer-songwriter who will be one of the headliners at Coachella this year. She was a backup dancer before her music career took off. Her live performances and videos feature her pole dancing and flaunting her strength and movement. You can see it in the video of her song, Cellophane. FKA Twigs dancing has also been featured in video ads for Nike, Google Glass, and Apple Home. FKA Twigs recently released her second studio album. It's called Magdalen. It was released in November. KEXP's web content producer Jasmine Albertson caught up with FKA Twigs following her live show in Seattle in November. Jasmine first asked about how FKA Twigs was impacted by getting six tumors removed from her uterus two years ago. In 2017, you had um, fibroid tumors removed. As a dancer and someone who's like so in tune with their body, what was that like mentally to not have control or ability over your body for an amount of time? Yeah, it's interesting. It didn't really feel like that. I can't really explain how I felt, but it didn't feel like I lost control. That's something that I think... Um yeah, like a lot of sort of like journalists have like picked up this like lack of control and then I gained my control back. That wasn't actually really my story. My story mm. was a period of stillness and a period of reflection and having to really get in touch with myself and be kind to myself. And actually, um, it wasn't a lack of control. If anything, it felt like a gain of control because I really had to stop and think about what I was doing and life suddenly got very real. So for me, it was very painful, like physically and emotionally, but also one of the most wonderful things I've ever experienced in the whole of my life because the outcome of it has just been a real extreme, like, elevation of my dreams of my physicality of what I know that I can get through you know the the thing about fibroids is they do grow back you know so it is something in the future I'll probably have to like face again but um there is a certain amount of power in that and I'm just grateful for that experience it was really humbling It was just incredibly humbling and it gave me an understanding of what it's like to have, just to be in pain every day. And it's just made me grow up, basically. It just forced me to to grow up in a way that I didn't know that I had to. Yeah, absolutely. The average person isn't thinking about pain Mm. every day, but when you have pain all the time... There's so many people who are going through pain, and it just makes you grateful. It makes me really grateful. Yeah, take stock of everything. Yeah. How long did it take you before you threw yourself back into work? 
uh, about four weeks. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's no. crazy. Yeah, I went. I shot that Apple advert with Spike Jones. I think four or five weeks after my surgery, which I would not recommend doing. But it was right. like an opportunity of a lifetime, and and I wanted to, and I just I just didn't want to like be sick anymore. Like in my head, I was like, I don't want to be a sick person anymore. Like I just need to like change this narrative really quickly. And for me, being on set, being like in front of the camera in like a video sense like that's where I really thrive and that's like you know that's one of my great loves so I just wanted to go and like be the best me straight afterwards but yeah I mean I certainly wouldn't recommend it <laughs> but it made you feel normal mm-hmm. and you don't say no to Spike Jones. yeah exactly. so <laughs> what else are you gonna do exactly yeah I love uh it just seems like you're always putting you're always working like you said um even though it's been a while since you released like a full body of work. Yeah. Um, you've been doing all these commercials, mm-hmm. like the Google Glass and the yeah. iPod, Apple Home and everything. Exactly. Um, which, when I found out you're a Capricorn, I was like, oh, yes, <laughs> obviously. Oh, my gosh. Every Capricorn I woman know. I've met has been like the best, <laughs> baddest bitch, you know, oh <laughs> working so hard, doing the most. Um, do you feel like maybe, though, that you use work as a coping mechanism or a uh, distraction? But is it work, though, really, what I do? It doesn't feel like work. It feels like dreaming. <laughs> you know, it feels like a dream. So I don't consider it's not like I, you know, like just spending like extra hours in the office so I don't have to like go home and deal with the kids. It doesn't <laughs> feel like that. It feels like I'm making my dreams come true. Um, so no, it doesn't really feel like a coping mechanism. I've always been like this. Even when I was a kid, even before I had like real like adult. Uh, responsibilities because you're a Capricorn yeah I think maybe it's a Capricorn <laughs> thing I think also it's just the way that I was raised I was just raised to just do what you love and make yourself happy doing what you love that's beautiful <laughs> I mean if you if you love what you do then it's not work yeah that's what they say at least yeah it doesn't feel like work it's just like an existence it's awesome so you co- you produce the album alongside mm-hmm. Nicholas Jar. Uh, which was a great choice, by the way. I love his work. Um, but also, he did a real cool thing and removed himself from the production credits because he said, well, she did the lion's share of the work. Mm. And also because women have historically been erased from the producing visibility. Yeah. Have you experienced a lot of that in your work previously? A little bit, yeah. Like, I have experienced, like, producers that I've worked with, like, denying my input after the fact and kind of at the time like ranting and raving about how wonderful it is to work with someone that knows what they want and has so much input and then a year later when it's time to kind of like do the splits they're like no you did nothing you know I've definitely experienced that but actually do you know what like I think when I was younger it used to really bother me now I I just don't care that much because all my music sounds the same it's just like (laughs) I mean, even the stuff that sounds really different, it all sounds the same. I know that I'm in it. So if someone feels like they need their name before mine or they feel like they need a bigger car or if that's what's going to help them sleep at night, I kind of don't care. (laughs) So, um, yeah, the fact that Nico, you know, offered to sort of take his name off certain songs, like I was really touched, like it made me cry actually because it was really nice to like have that acknowledgement of how hard I work and how much I put into the music but it you know that's not like a reflection of 
how much he did because he honestly like helped me drive the record home so much and we were such like a cute and powerful little duo in the studio and he's just amazing like he is such a beautiful deep artistic spirit and I was at such a delicate time in my life that I don't think I could have worked with somebody who didn't have like a level of like sensitivity and and spirituality because I just needed someone to like listen to me and feel me and sometimes like let me like channel myself through like their skills and that's really what Nico did and it's one of the most wonderful like music making experiences that I've ever had and there were just some moments on the record that were truly magical like Thousand Eyes or The End of Mary Magdalene. of Mary Magdalene seems like it's centered around feminism because of, you know, the way that she was slandered and erased essentially from the Bible as something any more than a prostitute. Um, I feel like feminism for most women is a journey where we experience it differently and we all come to our who we are as feminists differently. I'm curious about what your journey has been through feminism. That's an interesting question. It's, I think, like, growing up with my mum, who was pretty much a single parent throughout the whole of my life, and it was a very, like, you know, it's just me and my mum, like, just two women in, at home. I think that I kind of grew up kind of just, like, assuming that women did so much and that we were so powerful and strong, and, you know, my mum was, like, often the mother and the father, and so that kind of duality of, like feminine and masculine energy was something that I was like privileged to already have quite like a deep understanding of even as a child I think it's been more in my later life that I've realized that things are not as equal as they should be but it's more just about for me talking about like the narrative of women and certain words that can be used this isn't really on the record, but like a few years ago, I started to think about like the archetype of the hysterical woman, you know? Yes. Um, like that idea of like that if a woman is a, f- a feeling woman, then she's like hysterical and there's something wrong with her and she's over emotional and too yep, sensitive absolutely. and all these things. But actually, like, again, that's a superpower. So it's something that, for example, like, hundreds of thousands of years ago when we were all like living outside um women would if they were pregnant and there was a storm coming or some sort of natural disaster the women would like give birth early um so that they would like be able to carry their baby like up a hill or to safety that's such like a level of emotional intelligence to be to be able to like utilize that sort of primal anxiety to know that you have to give birth so that you and your baby have a better chance of surviving because then you can like 
go and hide somewhere or climb somewhere because something in nature is about to threaten your life and your child's life. Yeah, that's wild. That's incredible, oh my gosh. you know? Um, but now that level of feeling and intuition is twisted to, or can be twisted to be something like hysteria and a lack of control over one's emotions and all these things have quite like negative connotations. So I think like that was the first time when I started to think about it. It was actually when I first started to feel unwell that I started to notice it. Mm. I started to say to certain people around me, like, I don't feel good. There's something wrong with me, you know? And it's just like, no, you're working too much. No, like, you've just come back off tour, that's well. And I'd literally just be like, no, no, you don't understand. Like, I'm not well, there's something wrong with me. And certain people around me would, like, tell me that it was, like, in my head. And then I started to think, like, it is in my head, you know? I was like, it's in my head, like, but I'm in pain, but, like, someone's telling me it's in my head, you know? And then that just kind of, like creates this like false narrative and um I think that's when I started to think about what it is to be a woman and how just how like that intuition can be stripped from us as women and how it's such a beautiful and positive thing and how all-knowing we are and um how in touch we are with our bodies nature other people's emotions the emotional labor that women put into everything all the time in relationships you know the amount that we do like that conversation of unpaid work that we just do for free and it's not spoken about that was fka twigs speaking with kexp's jasmine albertson in november FKA Twig's latest album is called Magdalene. It was announced that she'll be one of the headliners at Coachella this year. This is Sound and Vision on KEXP. Today we're kicking off a new series called Northwest Classics, where we look back at the best albums that came out of Seattle and the Northwest. This series comes from KEXP DJ Marco Collins, who knows Northwest music really well. Today we're going to hear about the life and legacy of Jimi Hendrix as we focus on his first album called Are You Experienced? Marco spoke with Charles R. Cross. He wrote the biography of Jimi Hendrix. It's called Room Full of Mirrors. Are You Experienced is the best Northwest album of all time. The best Northwest album that anyone associated with the Northwest will ever do, period. It doesn't matter people being born at Harborview today, where Jimmy was born. No one will ever do a Seattle-associated rock record greater than Are You Experience. Greater in which way? Artistically, the achievement of this record dominates anything that anybody else from Seattle ever did. You take an African-American kid from the Central District, you know, you have him grow up going to Garfield High School, dropping out, not finishing. You have him growing up looking at Mount Rainier and then putting a line in a song. I stared at the mountain, chopped it down with the back of my hand. You have all the influences that Jimmy had growing up here from Bumps Blackwell, from the R&B of the International District, which he had seen, 
from the Sonics and the Whalers, bands that he saw at the Spanish Castle, from the Kingsmen and Louie Louie. You have that whole world, and you take that guy, and you put it in, frankly, someone who is just absolute, no other word you can use, but genius. When we look at musicians and their influence and their skill, I mean, I wrote a 420-page book on Jimi Hendrix. I can't explain why the kid was such a genius. He somehow had a gift. And there are people who go, Jimi Hendrix was the Beethoven of rock music. I don't know if I go quite that far, but whatever that gift was with the guitar that that kid had, he had a gift that was like no other. There is never a poll of any guitar magazine that has somebody that tops Jimi Hendrix. Wow. And Jimi Hendrix died in 1970. Right. That's a while ago. So are you experience his first record, which he records in London? The story of Hendrix in Seattle is a whole discourse, but he essentially leaves the city at 18, arrested for the crime of driving while black, which happened a lot. African-American kids in the CD were pulled over by white cops if they were in a car and told, do you have the registration? Do you own this car? And if you turned over the registration, it was your mama's car. You still were arrested because it wasn't your car. And Hendrix was arrested twice within a six-month period, given the choice to either go to jail. He'd done nothing. He'd committed no crimes. This is important to remember because it's part of Seattle's sad history of racism that people want to deny. But we lived in a very segregated city in a way. It was a city where Jimmy went to Garfield. It was a lot of multi-ethnic people there. People got along. There were not racial strife for the most part. And yet, economically, African-Americans were redlined. They could live in one area of Seattle. They couldn't get a loan to buy a house in any other area. There were other areas of Seattle like Broadmoor and other places that they weren't legally allowed to live in by covenants. Wow. This is Seattle. The Moore Theater in downtown Seattle. Jimmy never played there. The upstairs was for African Americans. It was the colored balcony. So if you go there to see a rock show today, imagine the Seattle pre-civil rights where we had wow. separations of blacks and whites. And that was the world Jimmy lived up in. And he was essentially run out of Seattle at 18 for being black. And that doesn't mean he didn't love Seattle. That doesn't mean Seattle didn't influence him. Remember, Jimmy lived two-thirds of his life, was lived in Seattle, not anywhere else. But nonetheless, it was a tortured history that he had with the city. So this record comes because he leaves at 18. He moves to the Southeast, joins the Army. He's only in the Army for a year and a half. He ends up playing on the Chitlin circuit for a while, eventually ends up in New York, is essentially discovered there by a British guy who was the bass player in The Animals. And he's flown to England, 1966. He becomes a star within 10 days of arriving in England. Within 10 days of arriving in England, Eric Clapton, Pete Townsend, and other people are going to see this guy in a club. Again, I don't want to overstate it. There has never in the entire history of rock 
been a performer who went from complete infamy to stardom as quick as Jimi Hendrix. The record takes a while to come out. They work on this record for a while. They record this record as they're touring England. In England. Yeah. Okay. The amazing story about Are You Experiences, the entire time in the studio to make that record, um, Chaz Chandler added up at one point. It was 72 hours start to finish. That includes all overdubs and all mixing. Wow. Wow. And it's recorded for about $900. Wow. Equivalent in the U.S. Okay. But it's recorded at night. They would play a gig in Northern England, drive back to the studio, have a 3 to 6 a.m. studio session, record a few things, and go off and do another gig. So Jimmy was playing essentially this vaudeville circuit in England where they had these shows where they would have seven acts. But he was a pop radio artist. Three singles were released in England before this record came out. So in some ways, Are You Experience is rooted in that idea of pop music being singles music, where you put a single out and it's, it's hot for three, four weeks, and then it goes away. So this record, you know, Hey Joe, was the, you know, you've got a single, you've got The Sky Cries Mary, which didn't do as well, and you've got Purple Haze. And when the record came out in England, it was a huge hit. It sold a million copies, which is a crap load in a country as small as England. But it took a while. It was released on an independent label called Track Records in England, and then later, a few months later, released in the United States. In the United States, it failed as a singles record. Nothing broke the top 40. Isn't it crazy to think that Purple Haze was not a top 100 song? But at that point in the United States, FM radio had just started, and the record was embraced by FM radio, and it became a hit and went on to sell 3 million copies in the next few years. Wow. Wow. When did Hendrix pass away? Hendrix passed away in September of 1970. Okay. So the the time that, from the time that this record came out, he had a very short very similar to Kurt Cobain, Jimmy was famous for three years. In fact, I added up the days. I think, if I'm remembering correctly, it's 1,072 days. So the entire life of Jimi Hendrix's fame is 1,000 days. That's pretty amazing That's to think insanity. About. Wow, That's was... one of the arguments I make where people talk about how messed up Jimmy was. Jimmy did do drugs. He did do acid. He had a heroin problem for a period. Um, he drank too much at times. And yet he was not – it's not as much the layered story of an addict the way some of the other Seattle rock stars. In that time, he made basically four albums, um, you know, was in three bands basically, The Experience, The Band of Gypsies, and then The Woodstock Band, whatever we want to end up calling that, and uh, played 320 concerts. So – this guy did a lot of work in that period and um, an amazing body of work. So set the tone. At 1967, what else was out at that time? What were people listening to on the radio? Well, the Beatles were out, and the okay. Beatles were the dominant music. Cream was big, and uh, there's a story I recounted in my book, which might be my single favorite story of all involving Jimi Hendrix. It's a story that Pete Townsend told me of going to a concert with Eric Clapton and they basically are watching Jimi Hendrix on stage. So imagine that. Hendrix is not 
put a record out at this point. He's not like an international star. So you have Eric Clapton and Pete Townsend going to watch. And Townsend tells a story at one point of Clapton's hand brushed against his and they embraced hands. Imagine that picture, if it existed, of Eric and Pete holding hands, watching, basically watching this African-American kid from Seattle wipe the stage with their career. Um, (laughs) You know, they... They they were great players. They are great players. They created legendary music. Yeah. Neither of them created guitar music is as legendary as Jimi Hendrix, a kid that had just showed up in England a month and a half before and had never done really anything in his life. He didn't grow up in that world. So what was it? What was it that that propelled him? Well, that goes back to what I couldn't really explain. There's some kind of genius that was in that guy. He said he saw music in colors. And his playing, if you listen to it, 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 it isn't of this world. All of his playing is sort of ethereal in a way. Um, I think what made him a great artist was the fact that he also loved artists like Bob Dylan. And that made him a great songwriter. Are You Experienced, it has a couple covers on it, but the reason Are You Experienced is a great record is also because of the songs that Jimmy wrote. And the songs that he didn't write, the way he recrafted them in his mind, the way he owned them. Hey, Joe, Jimmy might as well have written that song. I mean, it becomes his song. When did, um, when did Sgt. Pepper come out? Because I'm trying to place when the whole psychedelic rock thing started becoming pop. Sergeant Pepper comes out May 26, 1967. May 27th, 1967, Jimi Hendrix has a concert gig at a theater owned by Brian Epstein, the Beatles manager called the Savile Theater. Believe it or not, it's Jimi Hendrix in Procol Harum who debut that night, Whiter Shade of Pale. It's the first time that song is ever played. Wow. Hendrix goes backstage and brings a copy of Sgt. Pepper, which has just come out the day before. Maybe it's two days before. I might have the date off on, but it's, it's just come out. It's come out like on a Friday and they're playing on a Sunday. And he brings it to Noel and Mitch, the two members of the experience, and goes, we're going to open with this. And they kind of look at him. Noel told me this story. I, I interviewed Noel a lot for my book. But Noel said, he's like, what do you mean we're going to open with this? This is the Beatles record. It's just come out. Jimmy goes, we're going to open with Sgt. Pepper. And we better learn it. So he has a turntable backstage. He's playing Sgt. Pepper. And the Beatles had never played it live. And Jimi Hendrix debuts the live version of Sgt. Pepper. And it's an incredible version of Sgt. Pepper. And But it shows how much he could grab music and make it his own. Um, the cover songs that he ended up doing in his career, from Hey Joe to Bob Dylan's All Along the Watchtower. I'm a huge Dylan fan. Sometimes I even forget that Bob Dylan wrote that song because Hendrix made that song. All along the watchtower, 
And that was what he did with everything. Are You Experience, a much tauter record than his later records. Electric Ladyland he worked on for a couple years. He spent countless hours on. He spent 72 hours on each song on Electric Ladyland. But Are You Experience, 72 hours for the entire album. Including mixing, which kills Including me. Including mixing. Talk about Purple Haze. Well, Purple Haze, Jimmy never directly came out and said it's about Garfield High School, but Garfield High School's colors are purple. I mean, you don't have to go grow up in high school to to apply the word in a pot-smoking era to, I go to Garfield High School, I mean, and I title a song Purple Haze. But he also loved purple, so did Prince. Um, Purple seems to be the greatest rock color of all time, that could be argued. But Purple Haze is really Jimmy's first psychedelic hit. But the song is, a lot of the song are the guitar effects. There was a guy that worked with Jimmy on this record and some other thing named Roger Mayer. He'd previously worked with British submarine intelligence and he worked on weird sound devices for subs. And he had invented this little thing called the Univibe. And so Jimmy uses the fuzz box as well. Purple Haze is really a, the, the, the first great song that, that sort of made guitar effects bigger than the guitar. What he does with that song and how he runs his guitar through these couple little boxes. It was his first hit. It was a a hit in England. It wasn't a hit in the U.S. Again, we can think about it, and it didn't break top 40. It's just crazy Mm. that it didn't. Hey, Joe. Hey. Hey Joe's a cover written by this guy named Billy Roberts. And I think one of the things that's forgotten about Hendrix, this record shows it more than any other. Hendrix was a huge folky. He loved folk music. If you went up to Jimi Hendrix, which I never had the chance to, I'm too young to have known Jimi Hendrix. I'm old, but not that old. But if the people that I know that were friends with Jimi Hendrix, and I say, what did he really want to listen to in his spare time? It was Bob Dylan. It was Peter, Paul, and Mary. It was weird records by Stravinsky. It was it was odd stuff. It was the weird, crazy world of Arthur Brown. It was John Mayall and the Blues Breakers. Uh, Mopop has Jimi Hendrix's record collection. Go back and look and see what he owned. It was a very diverse, weird thing. Wow. It wasn't just rock records. But Hendrix uh, was greatly influenced by folk music. He played in those Greenwich Village clubs. I actually think if he could have been a folk singer and he would have had a chance to break that way, he would have. Um, Because that idea of the acoustic folk blues, I think Jimmy was better at that than anything he did. 
There's an earthiness when Jimmy plays the blues that you can hear that there's something about it. This is not a guy that grew up on a plantation. He grew up in a project uh, over by Harborview. But there still is an earthiness his music was able to jump and grab. The wind cries Mary. And the wind, it cries Mary. That song was written about Jimi Hendrix's girlfriend at the time, whose name was Kathy Etchingham. She was a mini-skirted, hot mod. She was a mod, and unbelievably fashion style. Her hair, unbelievably beautiful, cutting fashion figure. And her middle name was Mary. Um, She was his longest girlfriend, probably one of his greatest influences. She was a bigger star than him in England when he hooked up with her, knew everybody, and kind of was his entree into clubs. They'd go to clubs to be Kathy's new new guy. And he'd come in and he'd wipe the floor of these clubs. Wind Cries Mary wasn't as big a hit, but I actually prefer that to any other song on the record because it's one of those songs that it, it's got layers of depth. And it, it kind of shows in some ways the sophistication of Jimmy as a songwriter in the way that the covers don't. What does Jimmy's legacy mean to Seattle? You know, Bill Gates was also born at Harborview Hospital. Jimi Hendrix is the most famous person to be born at Harborview. There should be a plaque in front of that building to me. I can't believe there isn't. I can't believe we haven't named our airport after Jimi Hendrix, for God's sakes. You go to New Orleans, you're in the Louis Armstrong Airport. You know, it's a tortured relationship he had with the city, but it's not a tortured relationship the city has with him. If you go to any sports event or any big thing, they're going to play Purple Haze. It is the theme song to Seattle. The only thing that even halfway comes close is Smells Like Teen Spirit. But Purple Haze before Teen Spirit. Um, You know, it is Seattle's song. He is Seattle's guy. In some ways, he proved that we could create a legend. We could create genius. For whatever reason, the combination of the water, the growing up in the project near Harborview, going to Garfield, being around kids that were Asian and Native American and whites and blacks, and seeing the amalgamation of music that was happening, particularly in the Central District at that point. You know, they called it the Jackson Street scene. Jimmy saw those clubs. He saw those players. He got the idea that blues and rock could be mixed Mm. in a genre. He got the idea that black and white people could be in a club together having a good time. He claimed he did not see music with race and that he didn't define himself for playing for a white or a black audience. He struggled with that. Black radio did not play him. Right. Um, he wanted to be accepted in that community Across the, and, yeah. and had a hard time with it. But that, I think, is his artistic genius, is that he did also not define himself by race. Uh, Jimi Hendrix, Seattle's greatest. We can just put a period on that. We don't need to qualify it or say anything else. Two words, Seattle's greatest. 
That was Jimi Hendrix biographer Charles R. Cross speaking with KEXP's Marco Collins about Jimi Hendrix's first record, Are You Experienced? It's part of our new series on sound and vision called Northwest Classics. This is Sound and Vision on KEXP. I'm Emily Fox. On Tuesday night, KEXP Wopop DJ Derek Mazzoni dedicated his show to music from Iran and Iranian artists. This comes after Iran is back in the news following the January 3rd U.S. airstrike that killed Iranian General Qassam Soleimani. Derek joins us now to share three songs from Iran. And Derek, considering all the news we've been getting lately, some are fearing another war— What did you want people to take away from your show Tuesday night? I wanted people to really feel something about this music, um, about these people that made this music, the culture where they came from, the history of the place. And as the news gets better or worse um, and things happen, I want people to think twice or three times before uh, switching the channel or turning the app or flipping something that um, these are real people. These are real artists. These are people that care about their children, care about their history, have pride, have hope, and um, have a long history of graciousness and, um, and openness and wanting their stories to be heard and, uh, and shared throughout the world before somebody drops a bomb or or makes a decision that um, you as a human being wouldn't agree with. I, I mean, when, when you're hearing this news and you think back to just culture and music, I mean, what do you think of when you think of Iranian culture and music? I mean, it's Persia. It's one of the old, oldest civilizations on the planet. The vocal styling is legendary in the world of, of music, but also it's got an, a fabulous, uh, fascinating hip-hop scene, electronic scene, indie rock scene, blues scene, all of these things with a variation on this thousands and thousand-year-old history. So you've got this incredible thing that is strong, but also very fragile, and you can't throw words and ideas around like this, like we're going to take it out or destroy their cultural heritage. This is us. These these are people just like us. So you've come with three songs today um, from Iranian artists, some of which have ties to Seattle. Um, yeah. What's the what's the first song you want to share with us? Let's start. Uh, let's start with uh, Salome MC. Now um, she is a the first known female hip-hop artist in Tehran, and also one of the first graffiti artists. And lo and behold, I started digging in. I love her work, especially this song, Riddle, uh, off her record, Excerpts from an Unhappy Consciousness. She's now living in Seattle. You know, the reality of around right now is that a lot of um, this a lot of people have moved because of the 1979 revolution. A lot of people make home in both countries. And so she's now living in Seattle. We're now starting to talk about doing an in-studio. And uh, also an, another artist from uh, the band, the B-Band, who I have played, is now living in Seattle also. So it's an amazing, serendipitous opportunity for us to possibly get these artists in a studio and um, get video cameras in front of them and actually do uh, something that we are really good at here, and that is sharing music from all over the world to our population all over the world. So again, this first song from that Iranian artist that, that lives, uh, also a graffiti artist that now is in Seattle, name and title of the song again? Salome MC, and the song is called Riddle.
So that was Salome MC with the song Riddle. And do we know why she chose Seattle to live? Um, she's an artist, and I think she got a grant, and she was part of the Jack. She was an artist in residence at Jack Straw. This is the kind of stuff that drives me crazy. It's just like you don't even know what's going on, you know, in your own neighborhood. You might know what's up, you know, in Kardashian land or something like that, <laughs> but you miss stuff if you don't really pay attention. It just it was one of those moments. It was like, damn. I got to pay more attention. And I pay attention. And I got to pay more attention. <laughs> so who's another Iranian artist that you want to share today? So the other artist um, that I want to share with you, his his name is uh, Mohsen Namju. And he's considered to be the Bob Dylan of Iran. Grew up in Tehran in 1976 and now makes New York his home and lo and behold he's playing in Seattle at Town Hall on May 9th so stoked about that and this is a beautiful little track called uh, Reza Khan from uh, the record Trust the Tangerine Peel and this is a song uh, very poetic he combines poetry with music in his really interesting way and if you know anything about Persian poetry culture there is such a love of wordplay it's it's intoxicating in many ways this is a song that deals with what the revolution was about the ideas behind the revolution and the reality of what happened after the revolution and this is Reza Khan from uh, Mohsen Namju from Tehran now living in New York and once again playing in Seattle May ninth. That was uh, Moksen Namju, the Bob Dylan of Iran. And um, even saying that always feels weird because... But, you know, you get it. You get the understanding that he's got it. amazing chops, really wonderful wordplay, and, uh, and speaks the truth in a, a really powerful way about what it means to be Iranian and what it means to be uh, a citizen of the, of the world and now a citizen of New York. So Derek Mazzoni, our Woe Pop DJ, you have one last song from an Iranian artist that you played on your show Tuesday night. What is this last song you want to share? So this is um, probably the most well-known um, Iranian musician. He's a composer. His name is Kaihan Kalhur. He plays a bunch of different instruments, but he is renowned for, as a virtuoso. He played with Yo-Yo Ma. He was part of the Silk Road Ensemble. There's a couple of documentaries about him. He's a Grammy nominee. And there's an improvisational quality to Iranian music, which is part and parcel of what it is. And that's why, like, it's interesting when you think of improvisational music, music such as jazz. It works, but it's also, we already have that. You know, this is what we do. He's renowned all over the world at this. And it's one particular track called I Will Not Stand Alone. It's a title track of this record that I wanted to play right now as things are getting crazy. I wanted people to think about this, uh, these artists asking for this, you know, as human beings, asking not to stand alone, to to, uh, stand up against bullying, to stand up against ignorance, and use the power of music um, in a way that will allow their humanity to be seen and to be heard.
That's beautiful. Really virtuosic. Oh, he's amazing. Um, and then again, the name and title of that track was? I Will Not Stand Alone, and that was Kaihan Kalhor, title track of his release. So Derek Mazzoni, you've been on the radio airwaves for more than 30 years now. Yeah. Um, and I understand that you've been on air during lots of political shifts or big things happening across the world when it comes to politics. Um, we're kind of maybe seeing another shift right now as it relates to the U.S. and Iran. But looking back at your history in radio, when you would see things happen in the world, um, in politics, do you feel like you've always been able to react with what music you play and how you play it and the stories that you tell around those songs? Um, and do you think that also KEXP is uniquely positioned to be able to do that? Yes, yes. I've been lucky enough to be able to express that through music. And that's one of the things that's wonderful about being a DJ is that you can put a collage together to really express how you're feeling about this. And, it, you know, it's different when you have an election and you when you have... Um, you know, a some type of political shift. It's when it's war. When it's like literally, Bush Senior goes like, "We're going to bomb at midnight," and you know that people are under tables. You know, bombs are exploding. People are dying. They're getting killed, and we don't think about them. They're just like you know, video screens. But when there's music of those people there, it makes you think about this in a different way. It's not just a game anymore. These are people holding their babies, holding their children. Um, terrified that this is happening. And when it's your tax dollars that are going like, yeah, we're going to do this right now. We don't like you. We're going to make this stuff happen. And seeing what it costs. You know, we're like trillions of dollars right now. And we're seeing this cycle happen again and again. It's disheartening to say the least. But we're KEXP. We just had a, over a billion views of our videos. We're now one of these on entities YouTube. on yeah. YouTube. We have, you know, and we're growing and we have an opportunity to actually make a statement. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're focusing on things such as you're, a concept of you're not alone. That it should be now an international concept. We are focused on music without, um, without boundaries. We need to include these artists and these expressions hopefully to foster peace and understanding. We, that's, our, that's our responsibility. That's my responsibility. I've been speaking with Derek Mazzoni. You can hear him Tuesday nights on KEXP as part of his show called Woe Pop. On Tuesday, he hosts an entire show and played music of Iranian artists. Derek Mazzoni, thank you so much for coming in and sharing some of this music with us. Thank you, Emily. This is Sound and Vision. So Seattle got hit with snow this week. And for those of you that live in colder climates, you're probably saying, "Okay, what's the big deal? We've had winter for a while now. And I thought the same thing when I moved here from Michigan a few years ago, you know, seeing that the city panics if we get an inch of snow. But then I realized the city doesn't actually own a snowplow. We have a lot of hills in the city. So if roads get icy, there are some roads that you literally cannot even walk on. You can't drive on it. You're just going to slide right down. So this all led to our listener question for this week, which was, tell us a story of a beautiful moment that came from a harsh snow day. And the answers we got were pretty awesome. John Tangeman, Lake Forest Park, Washington. Uh, about, uh, gosh, 1997, I was booking a Thursday night show at a club in Boston called The Rathskeller, also known as The Rat. And I was new to it. I was just out of a band that broke up, but I knew all the players. So I was booking this Thursday night 
uh, shows, and I had I started getting enough bands where I was getting touring acts, and one of the bands I got was the Mermen, and we were doing a Thursday night in January, and I had guaranteed them twelve hundred dollars of the gate. You know, I had a couple other bands that night going as well, and at two p.m. it started snowing, and it snowed fourteen inches. Merman is a surf band, so it wasn't a great night to go out to see a surf band in, in Boston. And I had I was on the hook for twelve hundred dollars to these guys, and since it had snowed so much, nobody came to the show, and I had to pay them twelve hundred dollars, and there was nobody paying at the door, so I was on the hook for the twelve hundred dollars, and I had to go to the ATM to get this money to pay these guys. Except back then, you could only take about two hundred dollars out at a time at the ATM, so I had to find five or six ATMs in the city of Boston in 14 inches of snow. And I was trudging through the snow, drunk. I finally got the money, got back, paid the bands. We then had a snowball fight in the back parking lot between the Mermen, myself, and the Royal Crowns. It was a great night. My name is Charlie Morris. I live in the Ballard neighborhood of Seattle, and this is a story that took place on one of Seattle's worst snowstorms. It was a Thursday night, and uh, I had planned to go out to see my guitar teacher uh, perform at Egan's Ballard Jam House. I um, was excited about that, but it was so nasty outside and so much ice that I almost didn't go. Got there kind of late, and uh, only three or four other people actually showed up to watch the show. So the band members were kind of bored with playing for themselves, and they invited me on stage. To my surprise, I'm a limited uh, talent uh, with the uh, acoustic guitar. And I played with the band, and, uh, you know, I played with a drummer for the first time. I played somebody else's guitar for the first time. I played with a bass player, and we played uh, The Who's, The Blue, Red, and The Gray, which uh, was a song I knew by heart. Um, I forgot some of the lyrics, but uh, it was uh, a bucket list item to play in front of a crowd. Very exciting, and it would never have happened if not for the ice storm. I like every second, so long as you were on my mind. Every moment has its special charm It's alright when you're around rain or shine I know a crowd who only live after midnight Their faces always seem so pale Hi, my name is Ogre. I worked at the Vogue nightclub for uh, several years and uh, whenever there was a snow warning, we would lose business because people would stay at home. But one night on a weeknight, I think it was a Wednesday goth night, uh, people were bored, there weren't very many people there, and we had a, a big snowball fight ever outside. I think it started between the bouncers for the bad juju next door and us, but it got crazy. There was tons of snow on the, on the ground. And uh, by the end of it, well, I know it was a goth night, because I had to use a whisk broom to brush the snow out of everyone's lace and velvet and what have you.
Hi, my name is Jeff Gardner. I've got a story about um, music and snow, and this really happened back in January 1982. While I was in the Air Force at Lowry in uh, Denver, Colorado, I had to get myself to a concert up at Boulder, Colorado, and it was going to be Ozzy Osbourne. I ended up getting a ride. I was riding in the back of the of a pickup, freezing my ass off, literally sitting in the bed of the truck with um, a back against the cab, popping cans of beer open and trying to get them up to my lips in time for a big gulp before the whole beer would foam up and freeze solid in my hand. But yes, this is about a concert. We finally made it to Boulder, got to the show, but the promoter came out and said that we wouldn't be able to have all the props and um, extra things for Ozzy's show, and if you wanted, you can have a refund, but I wasn't giving up easily. Ozzy was playing, and Randy Rhodes was still alive, and so I sat through that show, and it was one of the best performances I've ever seen or heard in my life. This concert was um, reminding me so much about Blizzard of Oz, which was actually uh, Ozzy's first album, but the tour of this one was Diary of a Madman. But they still played a number of tunes from Blizzard of Oz, and the one I'd like to suggest is No Bone Movies from the Blizzard of Oz album. My name is Mark Opfeldt. I'm from Bellevue, Washington. Back in the mid-80s, I used to work at the uh, Costco warehouse down on 4th Avenue South, and it required me to take a couple of buses. I was a poor high school student with no car. And uh, one winter day, some heavy snow started to fall about midday, and the warehouse management wisely decided uh, to maybe send everybody home and try to try to get a jump start on the commute. But Quite honestly, it was too late at that point. The, the traffic was already a, a mess, and it took me quite some time to even get a bus to downtown Seattle, where I then waited for, seemed like, hours to catch a bus back to the east side. And once we were on that bus, it was uh, just wall-to-wall people, and it was the days before anyone had cell phones, and there was a gentleman on board who uh, expressed that he was going to be late for his son's birthday party. And the, the bus was equipped with what was the size of a, of a regular public telephone, but it, was, it had cellular capability. So we all quieted down while he called his son and explained that he was on his way and he was, he was going to be late, but he was trying his hardest to get there to this party. And at, as soon as he was done talking, I don't know what prompted it, but everybody on the bus broke out into a round of happy birthday. And uh, the dad was smiling. He's holding up the phone. And then at the very end, we all cheered. And it was just one of those uh, amazing feel-good moments where you just suddenly had faith in, uh, you know, in strangers and, and, and your fellow man. Well, I know where you're going and who's going to meet you there. I know how late you'll be coming home. But guess who doesn't care? Tonight I'll step out too And since I won't be here Happy birthday, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year Oh, I cannot tell you how much I love that last story. 
Thank you so much for everyone who shared their heartwarming stories of snow this week. If you want a chance to be featured on next week's listener question, I'll be tweeting out the question this week. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Fox on the Radio. And KEXP's John Richards also announces the listener question on his morning show, usually on Wednesdays and Thursday mornings. So you can also follow along there. Meanwhile, if you don't have a story to tell but would love for me to just give you a shout out on next week's podcast, Please rate and review the Sound and Vision podcast on Apple Podcasts. Rating and reviewing helps other people know this podcast exists. It actually makes a really big difference if you just take a moment to do that. Someone from the Seattle area wrote a review earlier this week. Shout out to you. I'd love to see three more reviews by the end of this week. And again, I'll give you a shout out on next week's podcast if you do so. Also, since KEXP is a nonprofit organization and publicly funded station, we also ask for a one-time $20 donation to this podcast. You can do that at kexp.org slash sound. And hey, bottom line is, thanks for listening to the show today. I now leave you with the final question of the podcast. Why does music matter? Here's FKA Twigs. Music matters to me because it's a universal language. And in each language, there's always phrases that don't exist in another part of the world you know have you ever been with like friends like and they'll say like a saying in French and then I'll be like what does that mean I'll be like oh it's like hard to translate in English or in German or you don't have that you know it's it's kind of just like a phrase and it kind of means this but it's like a bit of this and then you're like no I don't really get it but I'd like to to me music and dance transcends that And that's why music matters to me, because you can explain things in like a rise of something, you know, whether it's like clarinets or violins or something that's beautifully programmed or even just like space, even just like a certain beat and then just space. It transcends language. It's like a universal emotional like activation that it doesn't matter where you're from. You get what someone's explaining to you. That's why music matters to me.